You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode 81. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. I'm Jad Umbra. This is Radiolab from WBC Chicago. Or wait, no, now I'm mixing up Radiolab and This American Life. I get those two blended all the time. It's, it's easy to do. They sound a lot alike. Yeah, it's the same it's the same groggily-voiced NPR reporters. Yep. I feel like they go to training to talk like an NPR, like, on-air personality. They go to gargly voice training. Like, when you, when you do, you, when you do your, your story, you got to talk in your lower register, and in the back of the throat, you got to vibrate a little bit. It makes it sound really serious and scary and sad. But, but it's not done at, like, a, like, a, like a college kind of classroom. It's in, like, an underground bunker and, like... <laughs> they fill it with mustard gas briefly just to affect the vocal cords. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's really it's 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 a dark, dark place. <laughs> you guys have seen that SNL skit, Sweaty Balls, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's that's my that's favorite spoof yeah. of of NPR. Do you remember when like Hagen Dazs or or Baskin Robbins or whoever it was tried to come out with an ice cream called Sweaty Balls? Oh, after that, yeah, I do. Yeah, like some years after that, they came up with Sweaty Balls ice cream, and then you know some lady who doesn't believe in fun like started a letter writing campaign to get it pulled from shelves and made it as far as shelves it made wow. it as far as like the the supermarkets and then someone you know like, what i can't believe they put shiny balls out there this is so terrible da, 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 da. all those employees had a heyday when they canceled it and pulled them from shelves though you know mm. they were just mm. took it all home pile of sweaty balls yeah so today we're kind of just uh you know, wing a little bit. We're gonna do an, kind of an extended version of the "What are you into?" Uh, but before we do so, uh, we, do wanna... we don't plan anything. <laughs> we plan on occasion, and then we change the plan. That's what <laughs> the day of. That's what we're really good at. It actually is changing the plan. Masters of it. This happens so often. Uh, before we want, to, before we get into that, though, we want to talk briefly Star Trek Discovery. Uh, the Premiere date got pushed, what, five months from January to May. Uh, so yeah, that's a long time. Yeah, I'm curious to see what, how this, you know, what the kind of what this means for them, especially for a TV show. Yeah, yeah, starting starting in May, not always a good idea because that's right before all of the well people starting start leaving for summer vacation and admittedly, stuff. Admittedly, though, they were they're, they're doing something different with this, anyways. Like it, it's mm-hmm. a TV show. But they were going. They're doing. They're broadcasting the season, the series premiere, and then I think the rest of it is all online. Yes, that's what I've heard. And At least that's the way I've understood what they've what they put out. So is, I, is it dropping weekly, or is it just going to be in a lump? Like no, it's, Netflix. Suppose it's going to drop weekly. Okay, that's uh, interesting. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, th- th- that's also kind of an interesting. Like, how is this going to work for them? But uh, we were, you know, we were talking. The other day, I mean, networks are, you know, they're taking risks. They're trying different things just to, to capture that little bit more of, a, of an audience. Yeah, this just worries me a little bit is I'm, I'm worried, at least on, on the positive end, you can say, OK, well, they're trying to get this right. They want it ready for fans. They want to get the special effects right. They want to hammer out the scripts better. They maybe want to do reshoots because I'm sure they've filmed most of it already. Probably. On the other hand, I'm sitting there going, they don't know what to do with this show. They have no idea what to do with this show. Right. That's what I'm really worried is like they they don't 
They're not sure what they're doing. They're not sure what their demographics are anymore. They're not sure how to reach the hardcore fan base anymore. They're not sure if it's big enough to keep the show. Like that's where I'm worried is that that this show is already in trouble before it's if before it launches. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of in a similar boat. I, I think the fact that they're pushing it back, at least to me, says that they're they're really concerned about direction and what they're doing, and they're trying to buy well, themselves you know, an extra four and a half months or so. Here's a question for you guys, since we just did the Star Trek episode and you're both big fans. How does the new Star Trek show appeal to hardcore fans? How do they get you? How do they pull you in? Go back to science fiction roots. Yeah, we were. it's so funny because we talked about science fiction roots on the last podcast a little bit. And then, like, a day later, I think Andrew and I were on, 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 on like, syncopated, like, paths because he was like, well, you know, the old Star Trek's you sci-fi writers. Can you name one today that you'd like to see rights to? And I was like, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> and the only name I can come up with was is David uh, Brin, the guy who writes um, the Uplift series. He's the only modern science fiction writer that I know, that I can name, is David Brin. I don't know if he'd be good at Star Trek. I have no idea. He's the only one I can name. Right, the, and the only, the only one I could think of is John Scalzi, who I think... I think, Ooh, I think he, he would, would be great. I don't know if he, see. I don't know if he'd be good. I think he'd really enjoy it because of writing red shirts. I don't know that he would actually be good. Yeah, the red shirts felt a lot more like Galaxy Quest than actual Star Trek. Oh no, no, no! It is it's it's a hardcore parody of the original series. Yeah, I think I think Andrew and I are in agreement at least on this topic. Is that if they want to really capture fans. They got to go back to their roots, and they got to do what I, at least in my opinion, uh, hardcore science fiction slash moral conundrums. That's what made Star Trek interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know if that's gonna. Work. And then throw in a couple explosions, just a few. <laughs> well, how? But how do they market it to you? How do they? How do they get you to watch it? I mean, obviously the name. Well, yeah, yeah. I, mean, but... I think. I yeah, think... that. That's just. That's just Star Trek. Okay. <laughs> right. No, I think I think it being Star Trek gets gets the people in the door, and yeah. then I think honestly, I think it's it's the buzz around those first couple episodes that it's gonna either gonna make or break the series. Because I totally agree. That that's super true. Oh. There there are so let's... many Star Trek fans out there that you know they'll turn they'll tune into that first episode. I guarantee that. Yes. But it's a question. That's the of, case with like most of the Star Trek series. You'll yeah. see like season premieres, series premieres have like huge numbers. Right. And if and if you can sell them on that that episode, maybe the, you know the next couple of episodes, you're gold. Yeah. So here's here. Let's if we can change topics just a little bit. Yeah. Like here's a good example: the Netflix series Stranger Things. Right. Yes. That's a series that drove itself on word of mouth. Right. It had great quality writing to go along with it that everyone was interested in. So if you want, in at least my opinion, if you want Star Trek to survive, it's got to get to the level of stream, especially on a downloadable platform or streaming platform. Right Now that's not on network TV. You have to make people want to go look it up, go through the mesh of of products that are out there the amazon primes the hulus the mm -hmm. netflixes and pick star trek and for that to happen the quality has to be really high like you're gonna have to have like stranger things quality 
in terms of sci-fi writing to get people to want to watch this. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. For it to be a hit, for it to survive more than whatever. How, how many episodes do they order? 22? Like the standard 22? I don't know, actually. That I wouldn't be surprised good. if they dipped back down to 13. Or not back down, but dipped down to 13. Maybe even 8. You know, I want to say I've heard a number, but I can't remember what it was. Just I didn't hear a number, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold you to it. I wouldn't. But uh, it says thirteen episodes. Ah, see, okay, yeah. so that's that's probably it. Is they're going with that model? So they're gonna, I think, gonna need a quality. Have you, any either of you watched Stranger Things? I have started it. I, I have, have not I, gotten I very far. Ah, uh, man, I would highly suggest it. It's I, I've good actually, quality writing. I've, I've been limiting my my Star Trek or my my TV intake uh, significantly just so I can get some other stuff done. Oh, I hear that. My hard thing is if I come in the door after work and I turn on the TV, it's not going to shut off. So if I want to read or I want to get anything done, I have to just not touch that button for a little while at least. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. So uh, like I said, we'll, we're just kind of doing an extended version of what are you into. Uh, and Tracy, you seem to have the largest stack of stuff. So I'll think Yeah, we'll, Tracy we'll, decided uh, we'll, to read we'll an 800-page book in a week. Was that, good would, times. that would take you and I like a month. A year. Yeah. Year. Or if it's, it's Mo- if it's Moby Dick, uh, never. Our right. entire college career and then some. Actually, I found my old copy of Moby Dick and the New Jersey Transit train ticket that I use as a bookmark. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I have um, the, the Horace Heresy books for Warhammer 40K. The mm-hmm. first like seven of those books, I, I use the receipt from the first book as a bookmark. <laughs> but but the, it just transferred yeah, book to book to book. Yeah, basically. And by the time by the time I got to the whatever the last book I used it for, it was just a blank sheet because you know it's the the thermal paper and it wears out after a while. So it's just a little blank white slip of paper. Nice. Yeah. So I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. I was watching a show, a BBC show on Netflix. It's actually a mini series. It's not a a, a full regular television show. It's seven episodes called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And I got, I think, three episodes in and suddenly realized it was based on a book. I think there was a blurb on Netflix that Neil Gaiman was referring to something. And I was like, oh, wait, if Neil Gaiman's talking about it, it's probably a book. So I went and looked it up. Sure enough, it was a book. So I ordered it from my very favorite place, which is thriftbooks.com. So... Um, nobody pays me to say this or anything, but Thrift Books is amazing because you usually oh. can get almost anything on there for like three bucks. They and should. They should start paying us. For real, because I love this. I love Thrift Books. So uh, if you get more, if you pay more than ten bucks, you get free shipping. But it's like the super slow media mail that takes like two weeks to get to your house. So I've always forgotten what I ordered by the time it gets there, Surprise! and then I open. Yeah, and it's like a present to myself. It's awesome. So anyway, so I ordered this book and I. I gobbled it up so this is sort of an alternate history but i don't want anybody to think it's like harry turtle dove or any of that crap sorry harry turtle dove if you're listening no, it's to okay. I actually i've actually i've read a number of his books and my problem with turtle dove's books is they are super predictable That's super well yeah because it's actual history no but it's like he follows this it's it's barely alternate history like do you what was that into darkness series he wrote which was basically uh, World War II fought with dragons and unicorns and stuff. And yeah. if, you, if you know the basic overview of World War II, 
you knew how they you could you could pick out who the nations were and then what they're gonna do and they're like oh okay here's their version of the hall it's like you just knew where everything was going that's why i i didn't finish that series because i didn't need to and then he yeah. what was but the aliens invading earth during world war ii and that was he did well his first one was the civil war but if the south won that's where it was he guns of the south right where yeah. south africans give ak-47s to yeah i think it was time travelers or something that ends yeah. up being the the Dusex Machina in that one, um, so this is not so heavy on history. This is set in um, during the reign of George the Third. I think it's eighteen oh nine to eighteen sixteen or so are the years, and it does reference the uh, two Napoleonic, the big Napoleonic War, and then his uh, his resurgence in Europe briefly until the Battle of Waterloo. And so, do yeah, That's the, what they call the, the one hundred days. Excellent, yeah. So um, they do sort of reference Duke of Wellington, and one of the magicians sort of goes and interferes in this war. But it, the war ends the way that it did in history. So there's nothing particularly historical. But what I like about the the things that really caught my attention is, number one, the wit is fantastic. It's very Jane Austen slash Charles Dickens slash any British sort of author of roughly that time period. But it also acts a little bit like an actual history. So there are these giant, I don't know if you guys can see this book that I'm showing you, but there's well, hold like it up for a, our listeners so they can see it. Exactly. Well, that's kind of what I was hoping for that they would be able to see it through my voice. Um, but there are these gigantic footnotes at the bottom. So it'll actually fill in much like reading a regular, a really well-written history. So the story flows really well. I will say she's probably takes about 300 more pages to tell this story than she absolutely needs. But because she has so much fun sort of filling in some of the extra folds, if you will, in the story, I actually like it. I don't mind that it's so much longer. But if you are somebody who looks at an 800-page novel and thinks, yeah, I'm never going to get through that. I, that Probably this one isn't for you. But if you don't want to read it, but you still want, are curious about the story, the BBC, I finished the BBC miniseries. It's seven episodes. The episodes follow the book so closely. I mean, there are a few twists that you obviously have to take because it just that wasn't going to work for a visual medium uh, twist in the story. But typically, for the most part, it followed... Even the conversations were often line by line directly from the book. So I, I've always liked the way that the BBC treats miniseries adaptations of books. Pride and Prejudice, they did a great job. Uh, Sense and Sensibility. They treat the author's original work as though it is sacred. So they, they spend a lot of time taking the actual material they're given and making it an adaptation, as opposed to a lot of American miniseries and series, uh, TV series. It seems like, well, I know a good example of that is World War Z, where it seems as though the movie is a completely different story even than the book. So, yeah, they, they had production problems too. So like they reshot a lot of it. They changed the ending. And some of the shots don't look all that great, even even at the end. But anyway, so if you don't want to read the book, I would say this is one of those times when you can easily watch the miniseries and still get all of the good stuff, and it's not a problem at all. Then I also read The City and the Stars by Arthur C. Clarke. And this story is about, uh, this is the author's own words, the story is about 25% lifted from a story he wrote in 1937. This book was, I believe, published in 1954, but I have misplaced my copy of it, and so I can't tell you the exact time. 
Um, so he wrote the story and published it in 1937. And the more he thought of it for almost 20 years, he just figured, he just kept feeling as though he didn't do his original story or story idea justice. So he was going to redo it. So he basically reset the story in the same place, but filled it in and, and rewrote it and borrowed about 25% from that original that book, it's it's not very long. I think it's maybe like 120 pages or so, maybe a little bit longer than that. Is that it's like officially not... novella stage? When when is something going from no, novella to novel? What's is there like page length? I don't know. I can look it up and put it in the show notes or something like that. I, it's really borders on the edge of novella. And my the third book that I have to talk about definitely is a novella. But telenovela. This book. Telenovelas. Telenovelas is a whole different thing, but they're good so old, much fun. Good to... old Spanish soap operas. <laughs> they so this in this this story is set in a, a futuristic time in which the Earth has been completely basically wasted, um, and there's this tiny little ta- city with all of humanity in it that is essentially not cloned, but they have when they're done living and they live for about a thousand years. All of their memory, they go through all their memories, they pick what they want to keep, and then they trash all the rest. And then they store it in this crystal in the central memory banks of the city. And then a few hundred years later, when a new body is created, their memories are all uploaded into the new version. Um, People have sex, but not to have kids, that kind of thing. And everybody is basically born fully formed. It sounds like a pretty good world for dude. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm signing up for this one. (laughs) <laughs> Live for a thousand years, sex, no worry about kids. One of my favorite moments in the book is when they're discussing like reproductive, you know, genitalia, and they've evolved past the point that men's, you know, junk is in a hazardous position. So they can actually like suck it up into their bodies when it's not in use. And I was like, it's the Society of Manginas. It's the Society of Anginas. Oh, God. Who wrote this? Anita Sarkeesian? (laughs) No. Although, um, she probably enjoys reading it. So, basically, the main character, you know, decides... As well as I do, that woman doesn't enjoy anything. She enjoys the moments she spends drawing on her eyebrows. Come on. (laughs) She enjoys... She does an excellent job. She enjoys being rageful. Yeah. She really likes being upset about things. Anyways, so of course, I mean, this is pretty predictable. The The main character realizes that his destiny is somewhere beyond this one city. And sure enough, he goes and he finds other things. And he sort of spends so much of the buildup to the novel wanting to get out of his city and see what else is out on Earth. And he always keeps thinking about how he wants to go to space. And he's really sad that nobody goes to space anymore. And humanity used to be among the stars and they've sort of retreated and they've just disappeared into their one little city and they don't do that anymore. And once he gets out of the city, he realizes that there is more on Earth beyond just the city. So I'm thinking, I mean, you can feel the story climax and then start to come down and all of a sudden he decides he still does want to go to the stars after all so he just makes a really hurried trip in like the last maybe 30 pages to go to outer space very briefly and then come back and he's all done now he just wanted to see it so given that this guy is such a you know a pillar of science fiction writing i kind of expected a little bit more 
it's worth reading because it's so quick, but if it were much longer, I would have just really gotten upset and set it down. Well, for one, <laughs> I, don't, I don't necessarily know that you picked his best work. Oh, I, I know I say. didn't. Yeah, I tried to pick something a little more obscure. And I mean, but... and, and when, you, when you talk about, you know, those kinds of writers, you know, Clark, Bradbury, Heinlein, uh, Philip K. Dick. Like Allison. Right. They were prolific writers. So there's there's some really good stuff out there, and there's a lot of stuff that's really not that good. Yeah, yeah. Heinlein, Heinlein, and, Heinlein and Philip K. Dick especially. I have heard that about them. I haven't read anything that's particularly terrible by them, but I'm sure that's coming. I mean, well, I guess with this one, I'm mostly disappointed oh, that no. he said he spent 20 years thinking about it and wanted to give it another shot, and then it was still shitty. That's always dangerous. Huxley did the same thing with uh, Brave New World, as he went back and kind of... I don't think he rewrote it, but he definitely tried to spruce it up. And I, in in the forward uh, of the edition of Brave New World that I have, it's act, the forward is written by Christopher Hitchens, and he, and he mentions it, and he's like, "Yeah, they, they don't don't let authors do that. Like once they're done, you can't you can't let them go back because they'll just rewrite the same book over and over again." <laughs> I mean, hello, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> oh no, I was going to say George Lucas. Yeah. Also true. Yeah, just don't let them do it. I mean, I mean, I mean that goes back. I mean. Even further than that, I mean, Mary Shelley went back and, and changed Frankenstein. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. What did she change? I don't just remember specifically. Just updated it or whatever? I don't, yeah, I don't remember exactly what. I just remember my English teacher in college. Like, I, I remember we read the, like, the original version, and my English professor in college, uh, not Rocco, um, was just like, the whatever she changed just, just was total garbage. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know what it is. Like, just, don't, just don't do it. Just yeah, don't do it never that. goes well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so well, was that it? Was that it? I was just reading books. I got one more. I got, got one, one more. more. Yes. Um, the last one that I read was called The Third Man by Graham Greene. And Graham Greene, the reason I'm, I read that book is because I'm also still working on a book called uh, The Art of Portrayal, which Andrew lent me like three years ago. And I'm slowly working my way through. Yeah, I know. We're, we're, we are pushing three hold years. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on a second. You you blast through an eight hundred page book in a weekend, and Andrew's given you a book three years ago that you are still quote working on. Okay, so <laughs> now I feel a little bit defensive and like I Good. need to. You're supposed offer to because I was being offensive. That's that's the point. <laughs> that means what I said got across. No, it's it's been sitting on my shelf for like two and a half years, and I finally picked it up about a month ago, and then I got partway in and realized it that it was... It has been in plain view. <laughs> I know. For well, a fifth I've, of a decade. In my defense, for like a year of that, I was in college, so I was having to read other stuff that was mandated. So I had some excuse, but no, you're absolutely right. I need to finish it. So, <laughs> but it did recommend to me, um, it was talking about Ian Fleming... And then in that same vein, it was talking about a couple other authors that had started out as MI5 operatives and then ended up going on to re- write spy novels. And one of those was Graham Greene. So Graham Greene wrote this book called The Third Man. What? Fleming wasn't really an operative. He was like an ideas guy. He came up, he would come up with like, hey, we should send spies to go do this. And and like they're like ah that's that's gonna get everyone killed and he's it like okay it was such a good old boys club like oh no reading, it definitely reading was reading this the actual book about it that that's nonfiction I'm going holy crap the fact that any of these guys lived and or the earth is still standing is a miracle they're both basically just like 
completely ridiculous. They well, sit around and drink whiskey and smoke cigars and then come up with ways to end the world. Yeah, that was basically what Fleming did. He was the ideas guy. He <laughs> would just come... Now, what's funny is like some of his operations went through and were fairly successful. Right. But like a but like if you listen to like all of his ideas, you know, for every one idea they actually like went through, he had about a thousand that they were like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Or or I think there's a few of them where they like Fleming's like. Yeah, let's do this. And they're like, you're out of your damn mind. And then they turn around like, all right, well, we're so going to do this. We're just not going to tell yeah. him because he's a douche. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then it's like, they and then basically he went back to Bond. When he did Bond, he was like, all right, you know that idea that they didn't want to use? I'm making Bond do it. <laughs> that right. That's basically it. <laughs> this is, this, that sounds this, about right, this, actually. This is how and why it totally would have worked. In in this make-believe world. No, it's, it's awesome. So I, I read The Third Man. It's a lot less showy and flashy than bond and well, bond dude, you said that well a bond movie that's true bond books are not really that showy well at least casino royale is not showy and flashy okay i still have not read that so i'll, I'll have to read it to compare now uh the third man i have not seen the movie with orson welles in it but which by the way just last year got a re-release in brand new 35 millimeter they they did oh. it they showed it in a run of theaters uh, around the country last year, I saw it here uh, where I'm living. Uh, looks looks great. It just looks so clean. It's Is it black and white? It's black and white, right? Yeah, better be black and white. It it feels black and white. You're reading the book and you're like, this this literally occurred in black and white. I think the world was <laughs> black and white at that time. So it takes place in occupied Vienna when France, Britain, U.S. and Russia are bo- are all holding Vienna, and then there's a central zone that they take turns, like they take 24 hour shifts sort of looking over and it's just it's very cold it's very bleak it's about a guy who writes westerns that who has a school like a a boyhood friend that calls him up and says hey man i'm making a lot of money you should come over i'll help you out i know you're i know you're always hard up for cash so this guy goes over discovers when he arrives that his friend is dead um, and is like being buried that day. And then it just sort of goes through. He decides that he doesn't think that his friend died of natural causes. And the U.S. you know, chief of police or whatever over there. or No, I'm sorry. He's British. So it wouldn't be U.S. It was the, the British guy. He wouldn't believe him. He, he thinks that you know this guy, Harry Lyme, died of natural causes. And so the friend decides that he's going to go around and he's going to investigate the whole thing. And it just feels very very typical of the time period. It's very bleak. Everyone seems to have such odd motivations. And the main character is kind of a nitwit. I mean, he stumbles on the truth, but not because he's smart or any of his ideas are any good. He just sort of bumbles around until he figures it out. So it's it's a tiny little novella. It's uh, definitely worth it. And I think Penguin Classics publishes it along with The Fallen Idol, which is an even shorter story by Graham Greene. So I recommend that you pick that up, um, preferably from Thrift Books, because I think I paid less than three bucks for it. So yeah, now I'm done. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, I would really suggest it. It's 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 quite good. I definitely will will check that out. I feel like it made the top spot in the British Film Institute's like best 100 British films. It is British, right? Yeah, I'm almost certain it is. And what's what's interesting is that Orson Welles is in both movies on the top of the BFI and AFI top 100 list. 
Hmm. Citizen Citizen Kane is on top of AFI, and Third Man is on top of uh, BFI. It is, yeah, Third Man oh. is on top of the BFI. And we, uh, dude, and I were chatting right before we started recording about Orson Welles playing Harry Lyme in the movie, and that's just—I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I know it's perfectly typical because that character in the book, as you know, his information about him comes out, of course, as they're investigating the murder and they talk about him and stuff. It's just so him. Yes. I mean, he probably played him just like he plays himself in real life. Yeah, that's basically... I mean, Orson Welles is basically <laughs> just playing himself in most of his roles. <laughs> Good point. Like, that's really... With, with maybe the exception of, like, Touch of Evil. Uh, but yeah, basically him. I mean, Lady from Shanghai, he puts on a fake Irish accent, which is kind of priceless. <laughs> you haven't seen that one. one. Watch that one. That, that one's great. Nice. All right, Andrew, your turn. Uh, so... I mentioned last week that I was reading a comic series called, uh, or binged one called Black Science. Uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of an interesting series. So it's by Rick Remender and Matteo Scalera. It's put up by Image. Uh, in general, I mean, I've liked a lot of Remender's other work, Fury and stuff like that. His work on Uncanny X-Force was spectacular. This is interesting. It's, it, it starts off like the first, first uh, 10 or 15 issues they're okay. They're not great. So basically, the, the the general idea is you've got this character Grant McKay, and he leads what they call the the Anarchist League of Scientists, which is a stupid fucking name. <laughs> it's, it's dumb. Anything that starts with anarchist, generally, you know, speaking. is going to be kind of dumb. Yeah, but basically, the idea is like he creates this thing called the Pillar that allows them to jump between dimensions and just instead of you know instead of jumping to like you know here's where the nazis won world war ii they jump into just fucking weird weird dimensions Excellent. like rick and morty style dimensions yeah we're just like really really out there really out there also just like really like you know people just getting butchered all over the place like like I think within the first three or four pages of, of of the first issue, somebody gets just shot like through the face. Like it's like in one cheekbone, out the other. They're fine. They're fine. It's just the face. It's just <laughs> right through. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. It's like that Russian general from like the Napoleonic Wars, who went in the temple and then out his nose and missed his eye. That, that was. No, no. Yeah. I mean, one of the characters. What like, it, it? It's not even a character. Like you don't even. They basically don't even have a purpose other than getting their head blown off in the first like couple of pages. Awesome, right? Excellent. There are definitely aspects of this book you would like, dude. There's, I don't think in general you would like the whole book though. Probably not, but I am definitely pro head explosions. Yeah, I mean, just like, and and they are certainly game to off characters. And like the weird part is because it's dimensional hopping, you know, the some of the characters have been killed and then replaced by other dimensional versions of themselves. <laughs> and and the Just one like Rick and Morty. <laughs> the, the the one part I would I would I would say you'd really appreciate is that the character Grant McKay is a fuck up in every dimension. <laughs> like like basically so so what happens is McKay's boss Kadir breaks the pillar controls. So they're just jumping at random. Kind of like sliders. Yeah, a little bit. But you know, because they didn't realize it was gonna, you know, it was, it was gonna break. Like Grant brought his kids along, and some other people <laughs> from the lab. And oh. so, like part of the part of the 
of the book is just Grant trying to keep his kids alive. And basically, at one point, like, Grant gets killed and is replaced by another version of himself. And basically, the other version says, in every, in every dimension we've ever traveled to, you have failed to keep your kids alive. Like, you have just <laughs> sucked at this. That's so awesome. I like the sound of that. Yeah. And then towards the end, like, or t- towards the more recent issues, it just gets supremely weird. Like, it, like it's fun weird. Like, they basically, the, 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 they fix the pillar, and then one of the people doesn't want to go, doesn't want to go back to their, to, like, their home dimension. So they smash the pillar again. Only this time, it's right as it's about, they're about to jump. So it scatters all of them all over different dimensions. Oh no! And like, that's Black Tracy. They're not awesome. real. It's okay. You spend, I know. You spend, like you spend five issues with Grant in in this storyline called God's Head, where basically like he's it's been like three years for him. He's completely forgotten almost everything because it turns out like he basically like forced himself, like he made himself forget. So he's got to travel. On this like weird, I don't even know what it's not even a planet to basically go find this like godhead is what they call it. It's just basically like himself, but in like a big like head, big giant head statue to like restore his memory. It's so fucking weird. But like, tell me, he has to crawl up the nose to get inside. He does. That's the only. He, oh, damn. No, it, it's the only way you're supposed to. If you if you've got a head, the only way I want you to get into the head is you have to go up the nose. That's Stairs leading right up to the nose. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how you get in the Mount Rushmore heads, actually. Yeah. But, like I said, I mean, the book just gets super weird. And that's actually when it got, like, the most interesting. Where Grant's, like, it's basically like, you know, he, he gets all his memories back and everything. And then he's like, I'm going to go save, you know, everyone else. And, like, two of the people he's found, one's dead, one's, like... One killed their doppelganger and took their place. But basically, he's still fucking up at light speed. <laughs> Good. Like, he still, he still can't not screw up. Which Is just is it all the same writer on this one? Rick yeah, Remender does is, the whole thing? It's all Rick Remender. Uh, I think they're on an issue, like, 25. I've read, up to, I've read up to, I think, 22 or 23. So is all of his stuff two. this weird? I feel like, no. It's not weird. It tends to be kind of dark. Remender... Remender tends to be fairly depressive like his personality if you if you go and mm-hmm. read fear agent he he was writing that during a particularly dark time in his life and it goes some really like really sad, really sad really unfortunate places but it's hmm. it's all really good uh and then the other thing i've been doing since last week's podcast is uh while i've been doing the exercise bike because i'm fat and i need to exercise is i've been watching old episodes of star trek I went back to like the original series. He and I both realized, you know, we haven't watched the entire original series. So I basically started started with the unaired pilot and have been working my way through. I'm like three or four episodes in. I mean, it's fun. Like, it, it's just really... It's goofy. It's stupid at times. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, in the first, like, aired episode, The Man Trap, mm-hmm. four people die and not one of them are red shirts. <laughs> they I haven't would, they haven't set the the rules down yet. They don't no. know the rules yet. Yeah, they ha- they haven't they haven't established the proper uh, the, the, the protocol for deaths. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's it's definitely of its time. I was telling uh, a message dude while I was watching one of them. 
and Kirk and and McCoy are running around this planet and they're they're trying to trying to find someone so they're calling out to them and you can hear the yelling echoing off the soundstage walls. <laughs> like it's re- it's really funny. I mean, you know, even even though to start like even early on though that they are hitting some of those those moral conundrums and the ideas of right and wrong and I mean, you know, the the unaired pilot uh the cage aside from lacking pretty much most of the cast you know it really it, it's got some of the star trek elements there but it's it's not fully formed right it's just not quite there it it feels a lot more like a lot of some, like the other you know science fiction shows of its time lost in space that kind of stuff once you actually get to those for even even to that first episode the man trap and then into the the next episode 3's charlie x even once once you get to that point, you're already get you're already. It, it it's much more formed. It's much more what we think of Star Trek. And so it, it's it's interesting to see. I mean, it. Feel, what causes it, such a jump like that, though? Well, I think part of it is that you're right. They did the first pilot, and it didn't get picked up, but they liked the concept. So basically, they said, "Okay, what do you guys like about the concept?" Kept those elements, and then swapped out the elements that didn't. That, that were less that desirable. Makes sense. And this is the one that was was um, sponsored by Lucille Ball as well, right? Well, or the original, not not Lucille Ball, but the... no, Lucille Ball. No, okay. Not... Yeah, no. So Desilu, which is Lucille Ball's production company, was the produce was the production company for all three seasons of Star Trek. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and she, yeah, she was like we mentioned last week that she was instrumental in getting the second pilot done. Uh, the one thing I did, I. I did notice is there is some they, they they pulled some elements from the unaired pilot at least I feel like and put it into the beginning of Star Trek in uh Star Trek Beyond. Mm. In that the, the whole part with the, the beginning where Kirk where Kirk is just doing you know it's basically the same thing over and over again and he's just getting tired of it. Yeah. Um the the doctor who who's not McCoy uh, has a similar conversation with Captain Pike in the beginning, where Pike's just getting really burned out. So, well, I mean, at least we know that they're pulling from actual, you know, source material instead of just making it up. Well, I mean, it's... Yeah, that's giving him way too much credit. Yeah. Keep in mind, the guy who did Star Trek Beyond is the same dude who did the Fast and Furious movies. Right. Good point. I mean, it, it, well, it was it was at least written by Simon Pegg, though. This is true. You who, did. Who, who did is I, a, did who I is tell a you, giant nerd? Right. Did I tell you that? Like, I kind of snuck in and watched another half hour of Star Trek Beyond. Yes, did you, I mention that yes, the last show? Did. Yeah. Oh my god, that movie is truly terrible. It's <laughs> truly. You watch it again, you just go, "What is this?" Yeah. Stop. Just stop. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked about it. It had a lot of potential. Like, cons- you know, the concept was, I think, was good, and it just. It failed in a lot in a lot of various execution stages. That's when I went to go see. My God, it's Jason Bourne. I haven't been. How many times like... did you see that trailer? Out of curiosity, how many? Would oh, you guess? it had to have been like two or three dozen. And then the ultimate letdown with that is in the Bourne film, they don't use that line. Do of they course not? They don't. <laughs> they don't. Oh my God! The, the, the line they use is, "Oh, he like whispers it. He's like, oh God, it's him." And it's like, really? Really? I've been waiting months to see this? I'm like, I'm prepped. I'm right. I'm like, I'm like a diver at the end of an Olympic diving board. 
ready to go off, and then it's like it's like falling and ripping your toenails out as you as you tumble down and just land on on it, the, it, the like green of, water of Rio. It's like one of those hor- <laughs> one of those really terrible divers that you see that they go to do the flip and just cl- crack the back of their head on the diving platform. Oh, it's one yeah. of those. He's like, yeah, oh, was... oh, oh, no, 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 no. I haven't been to the movies in like three weeks because I haven't been able to generate interest in seeing anything. I do want to see uh, Don't Breathe, but that's about it. I'll, I'll go see a, a bunch of stuff. I still need to go see War Dogs, which I will see, but only yeah, because... Yeah, I want to see War Dogs, too. Yeah. I'll tell you this much. I haven't been really reading much this last this, this couple weeks. What I did is I started gaming some more, and I went like straight up nostalgia. I got TIE Fighter off of Steam from, like, 1995. <laughs> now, this is a game I was amazed how much I still remember. How well, how well does it actually physically play? It plays really well. That's the thing. So this. What is are what, you playing it on? Your phone? Your computer? I'm playing it on my laptop, and the problem is I think I've hit a problem because I it's it's cutting out on a certain mission. I can't. It, every five minutes, it stops playing, and it just shuts down on me. So I, I don't know what's going on. It's, you have to download it off Steam, and then they have, they have like a, a patch that, to make the computer think it's Windows 95 so you can still play it. And I play it on a Xbox controller, for the for Microsoft Xbox controller. What I haven't figured out is how to set the controller to commands that I want, because just, it just comes a certain way, and you kind of have to relearn them. I wish I could set certain controls at or certain settings on the controller. The thing is, as far as how it plays, it plays exactly like the old 90s flight simulators where you've got to adjust engine output, shield output, laser output, targeting. The, all the targeting systems are different. Like you could set nearest target, target that's targeting you, general targets. You could cycle through targets. You can follow your warhead into its target. Like, so there's all these buttons on the keyboard, and it's so it's super, super intense. And I was I had my buddy, he's he's a gamer over, and I was showing him these like this game, and he's like, this kind of flight simulator combat game does not exist anymore. Like, no. it just can't think of one. It's like, what would you need to bring it back? And I was like, really what you would need is you would need to make a TIE Fighter version of Mass Effect. Like, that's what you would need, is you would need the customizability of the ships. You would need kind of, like, to see more of the world and and explore more of it than I think they do in this game. Because in this game, it's like, you win a mission, you go to the next mission. You win a mission, you go to the next mission. Right? And then you have secondary missions that you can achieve in the game. But those secondary missions, if you achieve them, do not affect the outcome of the game. You just get, like, a little tattoo on your pilot to show that he's done this gotcha so like so like that kind of stuff whereas like in a game like let's say mass effect when you do the little side missions or you do something a certain way it changes the outcome of the game right a little bit like that's what i think you would need to do is is make make those secondary missions bonus missions the secret missions uh that sounds amazing but holy crap a lot of oh that was one of the greatest things about mass effect you know, decisions you made in the first game came back as a benefit in the third. Like whether yeah. or not you, whether or not you let the Rachni live, the Rach- mm-hmm. the Rachni queen, if you let her live, it came back as a as a benefit in the third game. Well, I, I will say this though: I did not let her live, and you just kind of got a zombie Rachni queen. So my one criticism of the game is, 
it, it changes the details of the game, but it doesn't change the overall direction. Oh, okay. That was my... Because I did not let her live. And I was like, oh, okay. It didn't really change anything. But I would like to see them do that, with bring TIE Fighter back so that... The problem really is TIE Fighter was a game designed for PC back in a time when PC and console were two separate things. Yeah, very much so. Right? Very much so. Nowadays, what, games are designed with PC and console in mind. That you yeah. have to, they have to be both. Yeah. And TIE Fighter, with all the flight controls that were designed into the game, would not serve uh, a console You don't have enough buttons. There's not enough buttons. Think, yeah. Nope, yeah. there aren't yeah. enough buttons. So well, I mean, you, you th- it'd have to be a pure PC game. You think about it. Right, you had TIE Fighter, you said, what, 95? Yeah, so there was three of them. There was X-Wing, right. TIE Fighter, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter, and X-Wing Alliance. I don't know if the last two are in order, but right. those were the primary four flight simulators from Star Wars in the 90s. Right, and then in the early 2000s, you had, uh, you had Rogue Squadron. For N64. You're right. But that yes. was in... I'm just looking it up real quick. Yeah. That was in 98, so that was three years later. Right, it was a very different game. Well, but what I'm saying is, you look at the level of... Because, you know, conceptually that was a flight simulator as well. But it was... I mean, you look at how the advanced level of controls for TIE Fighter, all the different options that you just talked about, and then the very rudimentary level of control for a console game. Yes. And yes. I, and and you're right. Like the the, the the they've tried to blur the two. They you know, the two have kind of come together now, but but you really don't have. They've really kind of they've all kind of gone more to that rudimentary. Yeah, it's I mean, like, like con- uh, consoles and and PCs. They've both you know gotten much better. So rudimentary is kind of a, a loose term, but instead of going to the more and more and more complex, they've gotten simpler. Yeah, so like the the graphics are, you know, the graphics of Tide Fighter are basically cartoonish. Um, right. And the detail is very low. It's hard to see details on the bigger ships and stuff like that, especially because on the if you're if you've got torpedoes on your tie your your fighter, um, you can target particular components of an enemy ship. So you can literally like pick apart the laser cannons to make it stop shooting at you. And it's hard to see what what it shows you a little box of what you're targeting, but like on the rebel cruisers, you're like, I can't tell if that's on the top or the bottom. So you fire your missile and you realize you're shooting at it from the wrong direction. You right. hit the ship, but you don't hit the the, the target you're aiming at. So I remember uh, Rogue Squadron was uh you you the camera was set up behind. Yeah, it was uh, the, third the ship. Person. It was third person. So all you had to do was get the fire cursor on. The, the crosshair on something and it blows up where like you would never do that in TIE Fighter. You would just die. That's all that would happen. But that was that that's been obsessing me lately. But I can't get past this certain mission, not because I'm losing, but because the cutting out on me. I, right. it's just I don't know what's going on there. Have and you then, tried uh, to contact Steam about that? I mean, would I they will. be able to help you? I don't know. I don't know. I'll think about it. Um but then there's uh I got Pokemon Leaf Green on my phone. So you can do that. I got an emu- a Game Boy Advanced emulator. I put it on my phone and then downloaded Pokemon Leaf Green, which is 
so I grew up on red and blue, and this is like kind of a more advanced version of red and blue. And because everyone's playing Pokemon Go, and I really don't care for Pokemon Go. I don't I don't like the concept, but I like the original concept of the Pokemon game. So I was like, I haven't played this in almost 15, 20 years. Let's try this. And uh, I've already made my first major mistake. I, I used the Master Ball on uh, already, not on Mewtwo, so we're not getting him. Uh, but it's been fun. It's been that that game is a lot of fun. There's stuff I remember, like it was yesterday, and then there's other stuff like I don't remember this at all. Is this new? Is this different? And I definitely like Leap Green better because like you can run. You couldn't run in the original one. Mm-hmm. You can run in this one, and there's a few other things you can do. Uh, I'm trying to remember it, but but it was. It's in color. It looks nicer. The animation's better. Like, I remember, like, Hydro Pump in the original game was just little jets of water going up around the Pokemon <laughs> you target. And this time it's, like, an actual, like, beam of, of water getting shot at stuff. So it's it's cool. Did you guys ever play the original games? Oh, yeah. I had uh, Pokemon Yellow. I was actually, yeah, I, my, I was actually thinking, my brother had that one. I, I, I went basically from a gray brick Game Boy to a fucking 3DS. I skipped oh, nice. everything in the middle. <laughs> um, I My brother had a Game Boy Advance. So mm-hmm. when it was still just the one screen. And so we played a bunch of games like that. Um, we also had a thing in our neighborhood where uh, we were pretty close as actually a couple of blocks because there were a lot of kids roughly the same age on the same two blocks. So we would actually trade games back and forth sometimes. So if you got, you know, if you were bored with a game for a while, then you would just trade um, but you, with the expectation that you would get your game back, which didn't always happen. Um, you know, there's a new Pokemon game coming out. It's called Pokemon Sun and Pokemon yeah, Moon. There's the two different versions. Yeah, I've heard about it. I'm I'm going to be really stingy and just stick with the original 150 or yeah. 151 because, like, I don't like any of the new ones. I think they look ridiculous. And I just want I just like playing the old one because I just my uh, the team I never got to build that I'm building now is like my dragon looking so I've got, nice. I've got I've got Charizard, Gyarados, and Dragonite. Well, right now it's a Dragonair. I'm trying to get it to mm-hmm. Dragonite. Those because you really can't fight with more than four, effectively fight with more than four or five. Yeah. Because you have to use all those. One of them has to has the special abilities. And it's like you know surf and push up, push boulders around and shit like that. So like really, so right now my lineup is a Charizard, a Gyarados. A Dragonair, a Raichu, and a Hypno. Those are the primary five that I'm using. Um, and I gave Dragonair Thundershock, so I have an extra lightning attack. I have no plant. That's the only thing I'm missing is I have no plant. I'm not using a plant in this one. Uh, but that's I was just focusing on dragon types. Dragons and flying. Or at least they, they look like dragons. Because I don't think Gyarados is technically a dragon. It's like water and flying. Yeah, no, that, it, it, that's, that's um, an evolve from Magikarp, right? Yeah, so I got like the old rod and he immediately got Magikarp and started like doing the swap nice. where you, you level him up. Yep. And, and then apparently like someone was telling me that in the later games you can attach like a, a thing to the Pokemon that will allow it to share experience with another Pokemon so you don't have to do the swap. I'm like, really? Because it's not in this game. That doesn't exist. <laughs> not in this one. Yeah. That's, that must be in one of those later ones. But uh, it's, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun. Uh, what else? On the board game front, 
finally got. So I think I mentioned last time we I tried D and D. Did I mention that in the last yes, podcast? Yes, died. Mm-hmm. Died like like. So I played my character like Doctor Orpheus because I was a necromancer from Venture Brothers because I binge watched Venture Brothers a couple weeks ago, and just like died immediately because uh, our our tank couldn't go up a flight of steps. Like going up a flight of steps, he rolled a some somehow he rolled a critical fail on going up a flight of steps. I'm just I'm impressed she's making you roll for climbing a flight of stairs. I forgot what why that happened, but like Baruch wanted to do something and just fell, and then I went up to examine the armor, and the armor came alive, and stabbed me in the gut. And I think it was like we didn't know. I don't even know how the turn sequence is worse on this, so I just died, and then like we had a bard. And the bard tried to mock the animated suit of armor, and we had to like it's a it's an, it doesn't have feelings. That's that's your first problem. You had a bard, right? <laughs> a tiefling bard, and then like the dwarf, the the barbarian dwarf that we had, could not stand up. Like when when he rolled to like get up and attack, he rolled another critical one and fell, and then after I got stabbed in the gut. I failed all of my like life saving rolls or whatever it is you the yep, the death save whatever it is I failed all three of them in a row, and then he tried to get up and he rolled a critical one again for his attack and he missed so he tackled the bard, and then we nice. all we all fell down the flight of steps again, like we all fell back down the steps. So I, I was like, I really need to. I've been saying this. For for work, but it also applies for gaming. I really need to have the Benny Hill music on my phone. Yeah, the Yakety Sax. That's the that official name. That's the actual that official name. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, so what I what we did is, um, I told her I was like, okay, we can go back to this campaign again, but I need like a tutorial campaign. Like I need to know how this game works because we spent four hours just walking and talking to NPCs until shit finally happened, and then I died. So, so I, need, I don't know. Like, so, sounds least... like you get a tutorial campaign to me. <laughs> yeah, at least I need something to uh, explain this freaking game. So that was there was that. So we also uh, I've been playing. I've been trying to play Star Trek Attack Wing, and Star Trek Attack Wing is interesting. It's like the X Wing game. If you're familiar with it, it's a tabletop miniatures game. Right. And they use this kind of system. But I felt so bad. So yesterday we we're at the game game store. And I put all the information. So instead of like using booklets the way like Warhammer does, where all the information's in a book, each cards, it's cards in a pack. So you buy the ship, and the ship has all the cards. So what I did is I got a three-ring binder and put all the cards in in the in the book. Yeah. And I left the three-ring binder at the house, so we were not playing Star Trek. So we played another. board game space combat board game called talon and we played about three rounds of that and it's it's not a simple game but it is a lot of fun it's a lot it's a space combat hex based board game that's a lot of fun but you have to like manage your ships and it's really tough because like the chips turn really wide, so you're really going to only make, like, one pass, and then you got to, like, re-maneuver the ship and slow her down so you can tighten up your turns but charge your weapons. And then when you pass, you want to charge your weapons back up and fire and then change your power curve. It's really interesting. 
and That's then, really uh, complex. I'm not sure I would like that. It's complex. Yeah, it's definitely complex. It's not simple, but it's it's super super interesting. Um, it's difficult with like one ship, but we did it with like two, and I blew up one of Baruch's ships on the first pass, and then used my other two to kind of pincer him. So one ship went one way, one ship went the other. So no matter which way he went, he was going to get stuck in between two of them. Right. Poor and it was Baruch. just a matter of angling the ship so I can get my forward arcs on him, and it was really, really neat. And then we play this game called Battle Lore, which I've talked about the command and color system a lot every now and again, and Brooke and I had talked about, oh, wouldn't it be fantastic if command and colors, you had like this the, the rule set from GMT, the guys who do all these really great war games, but with the production value of a Fantasy Flights, because Fantasy Flights puts out all these really impressive games you know they're the ones who produce x-wing they're the ones who produce right armada they do all the they do the star mm -hmm. trek star wars rebellion which is this giant their games are getting to the point where they're not like board game boxes they're shipping crates they're getting so freaking big yeah because they did they're doing 40k they've got forbidden stars for 40k they've got a horse heresy um board game and they're all freaking huge right and they're huge and they've got miniatures and they've got Dozens of counters and a number of cards, and but the production value is super beautiful. I mean, it's really, really beautiful. Like that's the one thing you can't take away from Fantasy Flights is how good their shit looks. It just looks great. So Battle War was a game we I had for about a month. We cracked it open, and it is exactly what we wanted—a GMT-style rule set with Fantasy Flights production value. So it's so beautiful. It's actually really, really, really simple. And if you've played like a single game of Command and Colors, you'll you'll understand how to play this game in two minutes. Nice. So we played it, and Baruch won the tutorial. But it was like he was like, "Oh God, I need this game in my life. I need to have this game. This this needs to be mine." The problem is the game is like eighty something dollars. Yeah. Right, because it's a Fantasy Flights game. It's gonna be. So do you get? To, does the store then just like? break out the games and let you guys play them there? Is that how you're playing these? No, I own this. I own all the ones I just mentioned. Like, I buy, buy them okay. and own them. Partly because, like, with games that come directly from GMT, uh, you gotta, like, own them. Because they don't make many units of them. And they disappear very quickly. Like, Talon came out the beginning of this year and was sold out beginning of this year. Like, yeah. it was... It was gone that quick. Like, I had to go on Amazon and hunt a couple copies down, and there were only a handful left. And the way GMT puts their games back out into the market is you have to vote to bring them back. So they have this system called um, P500, which is, which is novel for a company like them that doesn't have, like, a big following the way Fantasy Flights does, for example, yeah. where you... They say, here's all the games we're thinking of bringing back. And what you do is you order it. Like, you literally order it, but you don't pay until mm -hmm. later. And so if enough people order the game, it hits 500 orders or 700 orders or whatever, then they print it and send it out. I guess that makes sense if you're a small company because you don't want to be printing one or two here or there or a big run of something that's never going to sell, especially if it's expensive. And you want yeah. to hit, like, whatever the lot amount you know, that they had to purchase from the printer. Um, right. And I just looked it up. So you called it Fantasy Flights. I looked it up. I thought that they were the ones that made that Game of Thrones game. They've made uh, a couple. 
Yeah, well, at this point, there's a couple. There's a Game of Thrones, the the living card game, which I would suggest no one play. And I've never tried that. I tried a board game. The Game of Thrones board game, which is not that was really nice. Yeah, that's also like really complex because you gotta like. Oh yeah, there's so much going on. We tried it once, but that game only truly works if you have six players. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, like we tried it with four, and we all kind of got bogged down. Like it just, just we got stuck. Yeah. It was just we all got into a stalemate. You could, no one could break out. And then, if but if I hear if you play with six, the game comes alive and it just it gets insane. Yeah. The only it was so complex that our gaming group that one night I think there were five or six of us. Um, we barely made it through like reading the rules and getting the whole thing set up before it was like way late and we all had to go home. <laughs> So yeah, the, we didn't actually get through have, it very, very much. The thing you have to do with a game like that is have one person... Well, one, online, if you go on YouTube, they have like a 20-minute tutorial of how to play the game. Oh, okay. Uh, Fantasy Flights. And then two, you need someone who, who reads just through the rules and plays like one game by him. This is the way I do it. If I've got games, because I get a lot of those really complex war games, is mm-hmm. I set the game up and I play it by myself. Because you're like, a nerd. I'm a nerd. And you just go step by step through the game, one at a time. Okay, here's how movement works, and you do the whole thing. And then you can play it with a friend. Okay. Because if you're trying to learn it together, you're not going to have fun. I'll guarantee you you won't have fun, because you'll just be trying to figure it out. And you're like, what do I do? I don't know! Read it! And then you're reading for... And then you pull out a, a rule book that's like 45 pages long, and you're like, where is this? Yeah, and it just gets it gets crazy. Uh, other than that, I haven't really been reading much. I told you off offline that I've been I'm halfway through George Orwell's Road to Wigan Pier, and that's part of uh, my bigger project. So I don't want to go too deeply into that because I don't want to give away my thesis yet. But I would suggest it. It's 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 certainly interesting. It's not. I don't know if I would call it good because it's not not a novel it's not a story it's it's him just documenting working class life in northern england in the 30s during the depression so if you want to know what that life looked like uh then then if you're really interested in what working class miners lived like in the north of england particularly like i didn't know this that that they had such a housing shortage at the time there were people living in decommissioned buses Almost like their their version of trailer parks. Damn, these buses were like had the 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 wheels taken off and were up on blocks. Or some of them were not up on blocks, and since they weren't insulated, uh, I bet that got freaking cold, freezing, and then like their mattresses would get wet, and it would they would never dry out. Ugh. Like it, it's and really mold, it's, gross. Yeah, Ugh. mold and like you know how so many of the homes in England at the time didn't have bathrooms. They had outhouses. And how if you how the, the apartments were set up, if you had a front apartment, if you had a back apartment, you could walk out the back of your apartment and walk into the yard where the outhouse was. Because the outhouse was for, like, multiple homes. Mm-hmm. So it takes, like, 50 yards to walk to the outhouse. But if you lived in the front of the building, you had to exit the front of the building walk around the block, and then go into the back. So you had to, like, he, he talked about how it's like a 200-yard trip to go to the bathroom to use the outhouse. And I'd be holding it a lot. Yeah, that's a what lot. it looks like. 
And then how a lot of them didn't have, since they have bathrooms, they have public bathhouses. And, like, sometimes the public bathhouses, they didn't have enough of them. So you have all these miners who are covered in soot mm-hmm. and mining dirt and, and, and sweat. That's where, they, that's where they cleaned themselves. They couldn't clean themselves at home. Just no bath. So it, yeah. it, but then it everybody was, else is, like, wallowing in their same gross water. Ugh. That yeah, sounds nasty. Oh yeah, it is really something. He describes uh, an el- like these elderly family families that are living together, multi generational homes in these small small buildings. He goes through the dis- the size of the buildings, the size of the rooms, and and how like you know the ninety five year old grandma is just sitting on a pot to piss in. Like literally, that's what it, it is. Like when they, people say you don't have a pot to piss in, at least these people had the pot, but it's not it's not pleasant. Right, oh. but it's. It's an interesting book, but it doesn't have any of his literary flair that we are used to from 1984 or uh, Animal Farm, because he's written it way before. This was, however, the first book that put him on the map. Um, Road to Wigan Pier was a hit, a moderate hit, and allowed him to have enough money where he could finally get married. Even meaning to marry this woman for a couple of years, and he didn't have any money to do it. And He'd been meaning to marry her for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. He 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 proposed to marry her. Like uh, I think her name was Eileen. He proposed to marry her, and he's like he didn't have the money, so he he wrote wrote to Wigan Pier and then came back and she said yes. That was that was that. And I mentioned Stranger Tales last podcast. Uh, I still want people to watch that. And I'm Stranger re- Things. Things. Sorry, I keep saying tales. Stranger Things. That's so good. Just for the music. The 1980s yeah. music alone is so good. And that's about it. I rewatched Venture Brothers for season five. And South Park started this week. It was so awesome. Did anyone see that? I mean, no. You're the only one who I think really follows South Park in, of the three of Oh, us. my God. It was so good. They got, they got J.J. Abrams to rewrite the national anthem because <laughs> they needed him to reboot the national anthem. It was so good. And then it's like they have these things called member berries where they're just nostalgic berries that talk to you. And they're like, remember Star Wars? Yeah, I remember Star Wars. Remember Chewbacca? Yeah, Chewbacca. I remember, remember Super Nintendo? Oh, my God. I and then, like, they sneak in, like, little things, like, because they're little nefarious member berries. Remember when there weren't so many Mexicans? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> they're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's really good. It's really, really good. Yeah. I yeah I don't know I I would I would recommend it it's all it's all on Hulu you can see it for free nice all right I think we'll have, that'll uh, about wrap us up here so folks if you like what we do make sure you head on over to thereforeourgeek.com you can find our blog posts and our podcasts you can find us on Facebook on Instagram and on Twitter and you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes Stitcher SoundCloud and YouTube mm-hmm. so once again I'm Andrew I'm Tracy. I'm the dude. And you've been listening to Therefore a Geek.